Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Let's listen now to God's Word. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 2, focusing our attention on verses 23 and 24. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul here, as we've seen, is addressing the Jews. Of course, Paul is a Jew, so it's not merely an ethnic matter that he's addressing, but he's addressing the majority of Jews in his day who did not believe in the Jewish Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. They did not receive the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to His own, the Jewish people, but they did not receive Him. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to the Roman Christians, some of whom are converted, believing Jews who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and openly confess Him from the heart many of whom are Gentiles who believe in Christ. But there is a large population of unconverted Jews, many synagogues in the city of Rome. And Paul's method of evangelism frequently was to go to these synagogues and preach there. And so he's not able to do that at this time in Rome. But he's seeking to equip the believing Jews and Gentiles in the church or churches in the city of Rome so that they can go And they can proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus, Jehovah saves His people from their sins. And that the seed of Abraham all the more ought to be blessed in this Savior that God has provided. Now, that's Paul's approach here in fulfilling 
the New Testament Great Commission, the missionary mandate where Jesus says essentially to His church, to His uh, preachers, His apostles, to His people, He says, go and tell. Go into all the world and disciple the nations. But the fact is that this missionary mandate is not unique to the New Testament. Certainly, there are unique aspects to the Great Commission as opposed to the Old Testament missionary mandate. But the Old Testament people of God did have a duty not as much to go and tell as to, to, to urge others to come and see. Now, we do have examples of Jonah going to Nineveh and so on. But, but really, come and see is the missionary mandate of the Old Testament. God established His kingdom, His priesthood of believers, His, His holy nation at that strategic central location right there in the Middle East, right smack dab in the middle of the, the map as it were, right there at a place where nations would have to travel to and fro, and, and He put on display His kingdom, Israel, in the Old Testament. So you had the land of Canaan, the land of their inheritance. And then you had the tribe of Judah, which he chose in a unique way to raise up the king of Judah. And you had within Judah, you had the capital city of Jerusalem, the capital where the king, the son of David, would sit on his throne. And in Jerusalem, you had Mount Zion. And on Mount Zion, you had the temple. And on the temple, in the temple, you had the court of the Gentiles, you had the the court of the Jews outside with the sacrificial altar and the basin of water. And then you'd go inside the temple and you would have the holy place. And then you would have the most holy place. And then inside the most holy place, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And then, in terms of the Ark of the Covenant, you had the mercy seat. And so, you you have all of these increasing, heightened revelations of the glory and holiness of God as He established His people Israel from the very outset, Exodus 19.6, that they were a royal priesthood. A, A priesthood of believers, a priesthood of God's people that they might be a witness to those around them. That's why in Exodus 12, verse 48, we're told that Gentiles were able to profess faith and partake of the Passover feast, the covenant meal between Jehovah and His people. We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, Therefore, be careful to observe these commandments, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon Him. In the sight of the nation. So Israel was to be, as it were, a city on a hill. Come and see the Lord. Come and see what He's done for us. Come and see how He's redeemed us and established us in this land of promise and how He communes with us through His ordinances at His house. Day by day, week by week, season by season, year by year. And the law of God was to help Israel be put on display. And 
It's interesting that when Solomon is dedicating the temple in prayer, that as the temple's being established, it's not simply a temple for the Israelites, or as it were, for the Jews. But in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41, he says this, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Come and see the missionary mandate, the uniqueness of God's people as a light in the darkness toward the Gentile world. You see the Queen of Sheba traveling a long distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon and to see the house of God. And uh, it's for this reason that there was a court of the Gentiles. Now in Jesus' day, they had cluttered up the court of the Gentiles as a place where the money changers would exchange currency and where they would sell various priestly approved animals for sacrifice. And they had really crowded out this whole idea of come and see. But that was the mandate from the Old Testament. And sad to say, Israel failed to be that preserving salt in the world, that light in the darkness, that leaven of truth that would pervade the world with the knowledge of the name and salvation of the Lord. They failed. Jesus famously in in His uh, kingdom parables, Matthew 13, verse 33, says that in the New Testament, His kingdom will be as leaven. Just a little pinch of leaven in the lump of dough and it pervades throughout the entire lump. And so His kingdom would indeed begin as, as His truth went out from Zion, but it would go to the ends of the earth, subduing the nations under His feet and bringing the knowledge of God throughout the world. Uh, In the Old Testament, they were to do something similar to that through their witness. But sadly, they didn't have the leaven of truth. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 1, to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the leaven of the Pharisees, the unbelieving Jews of that day, who constantly opposed the Lord Jesus Christ, who boasted in their own righteousness as they perceived it and despised others and handed over Jesus to be crucified by the Romans. These scribes and Pharisees, what was their leaven that they were pinching into the dough that was pervading the world through their influence? It was the leaven of hypocrisy. The leaven of hypocrisy. And you can see just how evangelistic and influential these Pharisees were. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is confronting these very individuals. Verse 13, He says, Matthew 23:13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering 
to go in. So, in other words, their false gospel, their false righteousness, their self-righteousness, their man-made religion, their soul-damning religion, they were very evangelistic. It was contagious. They were constantly spreading it as leaven in the lump. So that not only would they go to hell, but they would infect as many people with this poison, this deadly, eternally damning poison as possible. And Jesus says in that same chapter, Matthew 23, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. They're going on a lot of mission trips here. Uh, over land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's Jesus commenting on the leaven of the Pharisees. Should have been the leaven of truth, but it was the leaven of hypocrisy. And Paul says that because of this same leaven, the Jews who in a sense, at least in their own minds, knew the law, boasted in the law, they had the truths, they had the law that God said would, would cause people throughout the nations to look at this great nation who's received this law from such a great and wise God. That same law, they had it, but instead, what were they spreading? Hypocrisy. And what was the result among the Gentiles? We've seen the result among their proselytes and converts throughout the Jewish religion. But what was the result among the Gentiles who rejected their message? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So here are the Jewish Pharisees, these unconverted, Christ-rejecting Jews who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And Paul is saying, look at you. Look at what's become of you. Here you are, sitting back in your easy chair, critiquing the Gentiles. Oh, there they go again. Those Gentiles. God's given them over to perversion and wickedness. They've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Look at the cultural decline. Look at the foolishness. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Look at the nonsense of the Gentile world in opposition to the law of God. And Paul says, do you know why they're so foolish? Do you know why they're so blasphemous and shameful and perverted? One of the reasons is, he says, because of you. And he quotes Isaiah. Because of you. Because of the hypocrisy and inconsistency of the professing covenant people of God at that time, because of you. God had placed His people in the world as a remedy for the foolishness and the error and the sin at large in the Gentile world. He had placed them there as the remedy. So to sit back and to be hypocritical and to do more harm than good, but to sit back and critique the disease that you've been commissioned to heal is utter nonsense. And we see it today. We're tempted toward this today to sit back and criticize and critique the foolishness of the world that's foolish because of us. Because we as the salt and light have not preserved and seasoned and illuminated. We've let it get away from us. It used to be a predominantly Christian nation with a Christian worldview. It experienced great revivals in the past and we've let it get away from ourselves. 
professing Christians from generation to generation have lost their children and lost their witness. And this is the fruit of our doings. It's not something to sit back and critique uh, you know, these politicians and world leaders and people that are so influential in the downfall of our nation. But why are we so vulnerable to be influenced by these wicked people with their wicked agendas? It is because, because of us. I'm not, I'm not discounting the sin and the blasphemy of the Gentiles by nature, nor am I discounting human sin in our own world, that the people who commit these blasphemies will be accountable for them. But the point is, it's our job as God's church to make a difference, to shine the light. So if we live in a darkened nation, we have questions that we need to answer. We need to examine our own selves and our own witness. And certainly, if we're sitting back critiquing the culture around us with a sense of self-righteousness, with a sense that we are right with God because we happen to be right on this issue and that issue, and believe me, you, you may say, well, that's, that's not something that a Reformed Presbyterian would buy into. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But you know, as well as I do, it's very common. Many of the people that are fighting against wickedness in the culture war, if you pay careful attention, they are self-righteous and they justify themselves before God because they're right on these issues. And, and there, there's, in some cases, explicitly no recognition of any need for an alien righteousness imputed to them through the work of Christ. So we need to be careful here. We need to take this to heart. Uh, but in order to do that, we need to understand what hypocrisy is. We use that word quite a bit. It's a word, it's a biblical word that comes from a Greek word and it, it has some staying power in the English language. You still he- hear this word, hypocrite, hypocrisy. This is something that is very much a word that's used in our own day. But what is hypocrisy's basic character? The Greek word behind the word for hypocrisy indicates a Greek actor who would put on a mask so as to look different, right? So there's an actor, perhaps a man, who's portraying a woman, and so he, he would put on a mask. You see this in Shakespeare's plays as well. You know, they would put on a mask so that as they play the part of a woman, you, know, you would see this alternate persona or identity. It's a Greek actor who's putting on a mask in order to appear as something that he's not. That's the idea. And perhaps for acting, that, that's not such a problem. But when applied to ourselves as human beings, it is a problem. Hypocrisy's basic character means that we're pretending and projecting to be someone and something that we are not. And so I want us to look at a number of aspects of hypocrisy's basic character. First, personal pride. Personal pride. Paul deals with this among the Jews in verses 17 and 18. He says, indeed, you are called a Jew. Now you have to understand, based upon the Scriptures, which were written predominantly by Jews who believe in Jesus, but Jews nonetheless, the Jewish people were proud of this title of being a Jew. The term Jew comes from the tribe of Judah. Of course, throughout God's dealings with His people, 
the people of Israel were really whittled down to largely just the tribe of Judah. There were those of other tribes, but, but predominantly it was the tribe of Judah. And the Jews lived and had their center of worship in Jerusalem, which was in the tribe of Judah. So they came to be known as Judeans, or as we translate it in our uh, English Bibles, Jews. And we still use that term today. And Paul says that you're taking pride in the fact that people are calling you a Jew. Paul took pride in it. We're told that he, he boasted and gloried in it, Philippians 3, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He took pride in the labels, in the names that were associated with his religious life. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, verses 7 and 8, that the Pharisees did the same thing. We're told that, verse 7, they love uh, greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, my great one. They, they love these titles. They love to be honored and receive glory from men. Rabbi, Rabbi. Um, you know, today, this can be the case. Not to say it's wrong to say reverend, but that can become, that can get out of hand sometimes. And, and especially academic degrees in our own day where you know, everybody's trying to beg, borrow, and steal so that they can be called doctor. Uh, you, you have the PhD, but then you have the, the, the doctor of ministry. It's a lot easier, a lot cheaper. Uh, it's a quick path to be a rabbi. Rabbi, rabbi. Uh, the rabbi of ministry. We need to be careful of this. He says to his disciples, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And the point here is they were taking pride in this title. They had a name. Jesus says this could be a problem in Christian churches. Revelation 3.1 he says, I think it's in Sardis, that he says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. He says this to the church. You have a name. You have a reputation. You appear to be an active, thriving congregation, a lively bunch, but spiritually you are unawakened to reality. You're dead. We need to be very, very careful about labels and titles I'm a Reformed Presbyterian. Oh, I'm a communicant member. I'm a pastor. I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. Be careful. Even legitimate titles. Be very, very careful with these things. They took pride in their titles, in their accolades. Uh, we see it, in fact, when John the Baptist preached, they said, we don't need to repent. We have Abraham as our father. We have Abraham as our father. We're Jews and therefore, we're good to go. Be careful thinking like that. Oh, I'm sitting here in a pew in a Reformed Presbyterian church, and I mean, we just painted the building. It's beautiful. My friend, you could be on your way to hell. It's not your label that gets you into heaven. It also tells us here, Paul says, that they rest on the law. They, it's an amazing way that he puts it here. They rest on the law. They rest on the law. My friends... When Moses received the law on Mount Sinai with the fire 
the, the lightning and thunder and the mountain was quaking and the darkness and the, the, the horrifying displays of God's transcendent glory. Hebrews 12.21 tells us that even Moses himself trembled when receiving the law of God. Deuteronomy 18.15 and following says that when the people trembled when they received that law of God, when God spoke it in an audible voice from heaven and they heard the Ten Commandments from heaven, that they trembled and they were afraid and they said, Moses, speak to the Lord on our behalf. Be our mediator. We don't want to hear this voice from heaven It's frightening us. It's too frightening. We need a mediator. We need you, Moses, to stand in the gap. And, of course, the Lord eventually reveals that He would send a prophet like Moses, the mediator between God and man, the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Deuteronomy 18, God says that was good. That was good that when they heard the Ten Commandments spoken from heaven, that these unconverted people, largely speaking, unconverted people, trembled and said, We can't have dealings with this holy God. We need a mediator. We need a mediator. God said that was good. That was preparing them for the further revelation of the promise of the gospel. They weren't resting on the law. We're not meant to rest on the law. The law is holy, righteous, and good. Once we've come to rest on the Lord Jesus Christ, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Once we've come to rest on the Lord Jesus Christ, rest in His finished work, His perfect obedience to the law of God, even under the death of the cross, once we've come to rest and strive and labor to enter into that rest in Christ, then we find that for us the law is a law of liberty. It's a blessing. It humbles us. It strengthens our faith in what God has said about our sin and how much we need Christ. It points us to Christ. It drives us to Christ if necessary. And it gives us a guide, an authoritative rule of life as believers. So there's nothing wrong with the law of God if it's used properly. But my dear friend, do not rest on the law of God as the Pharisees rested on it. They said, well, I'm, I'm better than this other guy over here. He's a tax collector. He's an extortioner. She's an adulteress. These people that are living in such scandalous sins, I'm not like that. Look at the law of God. I'm better than them on the basis of the law of God and I'm going to rest in that. I'm going to take comfort and gain assurance Because in my mind, I stack up comparatively superior and better toward other people in keeping the law of God. My friend, you're going to find on Judgment Day that you're not going to be compared to this, that, or the other person around you. You're going to be compared to the law itself, which is spiritual, which deals with your thoughts your words, your actions. You're going to be compared to the perfect standard of righteousness, which is God's character. You're going to be compared to the perfect example of law-keeping, loving God and loving others, Jesus Christ. You're going to be compared to that glorious image of God into which our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created. And the Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of that glory of God. So please... Don't rest on the law. It's like 
Jacob in the wilderness when he took, he had nothing else to lay on but a stone pillow. Not very comfortable. Okay? Rest upon Christ. And they're taking pride in their law keeping and thinking that it gives them a right standing with God and so they can rest easy. And we'll see the surprise that they're in for later on. But thirdly, they boast in God. Now you say, well, what's wrong with that? Doesn't the Bible say if you're going to boast in anything, boast in the Lord. Boast in the death and resurrection of Christ. If you're going to glory in something, glory in the cross of Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to you and you have been crucified to the world. Well, Paul's not critiquing that because that's not what these Jews were doing. They weren't boasting in God in a way that exalts God and humbles us, which is what boasting in the cross is. Right? If I boast in the cross and somebody says, well, what's the purpose of the cross? Well, that's what my sins deserved. The only way I could go to heaven is if God, the eternal Son of God, was nailed to a cross and bore the wrath of God. That's the, that's the only way. I'm such a sinner that the only way that I could get through heaven's gates was that display of shame and misery. See, boasting in God in, in the biblical sense humbles us. But that's not what they were doing. If you look at uh, the New Testament teaching on this point, for instance, John 8, verse 41. John 8 and verse 41. They say to Jesus, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. Now in that conversation, they claim to be children of Abraham, and they take pride in that. We've seen that they take pride in being called a Jew. But they also boasted in God. We have a unique relationship with God. Uh, We're the people of God. We're the children of God. And again, why do they think they're the children of God? Because of these external privileges and statuses that they have. Uh, They're resting on their good works, in their labels, in their titles. And they say, we're children of God. We have one Father, God. And they use that to establish superiority toward everyone else. Rather than saying, to whom much is given, much is required, they say, to whom much is given, exalt, boast. Much honor should be given in light of those external privileges. And uh, we see another example of this in 1 Kings 22, verse 24, where Micaiah the son of Imla has declared that Ahab would not come back from the battle alive. And the false prophet Zedekiah the son of Kenanah has prophesied otherwise. He, he's tickled the ears of the kings in this court and we're told then there's a confrontation between the false prophet and the true prophet. And we're told, Now Zedekiah the son of Canaanah went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the Spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? And this is what the Jews were saying in the synagogue, the unconverted Jews toward Paul. They were saying, who do you think you are? This is what they were saying to the converted Gentiles who believed in the line of the tribe of Judah. They were saying, the law shall not perish from the priest. As Jeremiah said, as, as is said in Jeremiah. They, they were saying, we've got the Spirit of God. 
We're the people of God. How dare you question our interpretations? How dare you question our doctrines? How dare you question our synagogue preachers and teachers? Paul, who do you think you are? How did the Spirit of God leave His covenant people to go to this ragtag bunch of Christians? They boasted in God as if their outward relationship in covenant with God gave them carte blanche, a blank check, to do and say whatever they wanted and to be vindicated because God was on their side. In Jeremiah's day, they said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If God's given us His temple, we can do what we want. doesn't matter. No consequences. No accountability. Well, fourthly, in their pride, they claim that they know God's will and they approve what is excellent. They know God's will and they approve what is excellent. In other words, they're the, the, the gatekeepers of truth and knowledge. They've got the monopoly. They've got the corner of, on the market. If something's true, if an interpretation, for instance, that Jesus is the Messiah, if that's true, then the Pharisees are going to believe and teach it. If they don't, you might as well forget about it. Uh, we are the people. Wisdom dies with us. That was their mentality. You remember when they sent the officers of the temple guard to arrest Jesus and these men came back to the scribes and Pharisees and they said, no one ever spake like this man. No one ever spoke like him. We were amazed at his teachings. We we just were paralyzed. We couldn't move a muscle to arrest this great teacher. And the Pharisees are having this conversation in the Sanhedrin of what to do about it. And somebody makes the comment, have the Pharisees believed in Him? In other words, how could you dare to believe in Jesus as the Messiah if the Pharisees haven't understood and declared this fact? If they haven't approved this teaching to be excellent, have the Pharisees believed in Him? If not, you shouldn't pay any attention to it. That was the mentality And you see that in religious organizations today. Of course, we all need to be careful about that. We need to be good Bereans that are teachable, searching the Scriptures, but making sure what's being preached is actually in the Scriptures. We need to have accountability toward church leadership. But there are groups where it's just so obvious that it's virtually cultic, if not cultic itself where you have religious leaders in some sort of hierarchical establishment and they speak as it were either explicitly or at a practical level, they speak for God with divine infallibility. And if anybody disagrees with them, you're out. Have the Pharisees believed in Him? Has so-and-so or such-and-such declared this to be? My friends, be careful of that. That was the pride of the Pharisees. And lastly, in their pride, they boasted that they were instructed out of the law. They were instructed out of the law. They had the finest education in studying Hebrew and the Hebrew Bible that money could buy. The Apostle Paul actually had this education. And he advanced beyond most of his contemporaries in studying the law of God. And he had to confess that he himself uh, had to humble himself. But, but they, they took pride in their instruction. The word instructed here is a word that seems to be connected with the word for catechism. 
something we need to be careful about. Catechism is a great blessing, as is theological education. But we need to be careful that we don't begin to have an air about us. We've got all the answers. We know God's will. We approve what is excellent. We're instructed. We're educated. These fishermen, these uneducated, foolish fishermen. Acts 4.13 They didn't listen to the Gospel. They didn't listen to the message of Jesus because the people who were proclaiming it didn't meet their standard of academic respectability. You mean the very first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ are women? They can't even testify in court. By the way, if, if the New Testament was made up and Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, why would, they, why would the, the authors of the New Testament make the chief eyewitnesses women? I mean, if they were trying to deceive people, surely they would have invented a story where they had more credible eyewitnesses. But they wrote that the women were the first to see the resurrected Christ because that's what actually happened because the Bible is the Word of God. But many of these Pharisees, they wouldn't listen because they say, we've got the training, we've got the academic respectability. Who are these women? Who are these fishermen to tell us? Who is this blind man that Jesus healed? Remember in John chapter 9, the blind man. They're investigating is this really the same guy? Did Jesus really heal him? They go to his parents. His parents are afraid to say anything because if you believe in Jesus, they'll boot you out of the synagogue. And so they come to this man who had been born blind, whom Jesus had healed. Verse 28 of John 9. Then they reviled him. You know, because he's saying, Look, yes, I'm the guy. Yes, he healed me. Why are you asking me these questions? Then they reviled him and said, You are His disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We've been trained in the law, in other words. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. And and the assumption is if we don't know it, nobody can know it because we're the experts. And the man goes on. He says, why? This is a marvelous thing. That you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, He hears Him. So this man is manifesting divine powers, which shows he's on good terms with God, and he's claiming to be the Son of God. So that means he's not a liar. So do the math. This guy, he was born blind. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed necessarily. Didn't have the advantage of, I mean, they didn't have Braille back then, so he didn't have the advantage of the education that the Pharisees had, but he has a little bit of common sense, and he can point to the reality of the truth of Jesus' claims. But they can't handle this in their pride. He says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered back, you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? There you go. Pride. Instructed out of the law. And yet they failed to see the whole point of the law, which is pointing to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, verse 4. So the, the, the biggest aspect of hypocrisy is pride, but it also then, as you can see, spills over into a condescending spirit as we begin to compare ourselves with others. Verse 19, you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, 
an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So notice the superiority complex at every point here. If you look carefully at at what what he's saying here about them, first you see that they're self-confident. They're confident in themselves, their knowledge and their discernment, their wisdom. Paul says, Philippians 3.3, though I had reason to be confident in the flesh, I've counted it all loss for the, for the delight of knowing Christ. But they had confidence in themselves that they were righteous and that they had the corner of the market on wisdom. Also, they make these flattering comparisons between themselves and others. The Gentiles, the people outside of our little club, are the blind and we're the guides. They're in the dark and we have the light. They're foolish and we're instructed in the truth of God. They're infants, babes, that they know nothing and we're the teachers. And my friends, nothing is more toxic in the Christian life or in the Christian church or in the Christian ministry than that air of condescension toward others. Even when people fall into errors, even when they're influenced by the devil, even when they fall into darkness and foolishness and blindness, Paul says, 2 Timothy 2.24, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. So we could take it as an opportunity to be superior and condescending when somebody makes an error. I mean, that would be the easiest thing to do because they've fallen into the darkness of error. But he says, take it as an opportunity to be humble in humility correcting those in opposition if perchance God will give them repentance so that they may know the truth. Why is Paul saying that? Because his goal is that people would actually know the truth. His goal is not just that the, tr- that the error would be refuted and embarrassed and kicked to the curb. It's not just that we would make an example out of this type of error and show it to be ridiculous. His goal is that the person who's been influenced by it would actually be persuaded and won to a knowledge of the truth and ripped out of Satan's grasp. And and so you see the Jews with their condescending attitude, whatever knowledge they had, it wasn't effective at, at doing anything of any value for advancing God's kingdom because that's just not how it works. You're not going to win souls simply by winning arguments, and we need to be careful about that. The more knowledge we have theologically, the more we feel like we can run circles around these different movements and errors that have surrounded us in the world today, the the more prone we may be to a superiority complex, to think ourselves better. Now, is the truth of God superior to error? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are the people of God to be more knowledgeable than the unbelieving world, more godly than the unbelieving world? Absolutely. But the way in which we promote true religion is not through stressing these things to our own self-aggrandizement. It is humbling ourselves, comparing ourselves to Christ and realizing what we were before He saved us. 
They have that condescending spirit. And in addition, they're content with the outward forms. Verse 20, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. We've got the academic intellectual structure. We've got the outward shell of ordinances. We have the form. The form. Now the form is important. We need forms. We need forms of worship. We need forms. We need patterns of daily devotions. We need structures of systematic theology. We need outward forms. But you see, they're gravitating to the forms in and of themselves for their own sake. They're drawing near to the Lord with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. They're emphasizing circumcision as an outward ordinance, but they're not cutting off the flesh and circumcising the foreskin of their heart by killing sin as a result of the grace of God. They're they're not concerned with the new birth, the new life. They're just concerned with the old forms. And you can see this when they bring Jesus before Pilate. Here they are slandering and betraying the Son of God before the wicked pagan magistrate. And notice what they're concerned about. They're not concerned about their slander, their false accusations, their murderous plot against the Son of God. What are they concerned about? Well, we can't go in Pilate's Praetorium because it's going to make us defiled for the Passover. Or David even, when he commits adultery with Bathsheba, uh, he's concerned about uh, what time of the month it is for Bathsheba. Oh, I don't want to violate this or that Old Testament restriction. But you're committing adultery and then deception and murder, the hypocrisy, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. We don't want to swallow bugs, but if you're going to strain something out, let's start with the camel. The form of godliness, but denying its power. In addition, there are, in the life of the hypocrite, flagrant practical inconsistencies. Flagrant practical inconsistencies. Verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man shouldn't steal, do you steal? You preach that people shouldn't worship idols, but, um, but worship the true and living God. And he uses a word here, uh, rob temples, really it means some type of sacrilege. Uh, you won't worship idols, but do you engage in sacrilegious things? Do you violate the holiness of God's name in one way or another? Do you really worship God from the heart in spirit and in truth? He says, do you commit adultery even though you're preaching against it? It's this flagrant practical inconsistency. You're trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye, but there is a giant log in your own eye. And as some have pointed out, the speck and the log are made up of the same substance. Oftentimes when we're hypocritical, when we're judgmental, and we have this flagrant inconsistency in our lives, it can often be the very same issue that we're critiquing in others. Flagrant, practical inconsistencies. As Jesus says in Matthew 23, the Pharisees are those who say one thing and do another thing. They say one thing and they do quite another. They bind heavy burdens hard to bear on everybody else, but as the hidden camera follows them throughout the week, uh, they don't lift a finger in obedience 
to those same commandments. Fraudulent, practical inconsistencies. I was talking to somebody at the uh, family conference this summer, and he was telling me how he came to become a communicant member at the particular RP church in Indiana where he's worshiping. And he said that he and his wife uh, began to learn these various truths of the Bible and were looking for a church that taught these things. And, and they went to this one church. I think it was a, a Presbyterian church. I, I won't say the denomination because I can't say for sure which one it was. Uh, but conservative Presbyterian Bible-believing church. And he sat down in the pew and there was someone in front of him that he later realized was an elder during the prayer or during the service in some way, shape, or form was uh, playing around on his cell phone and he, he, he left that church and he you know, ended up in the RP church and then I got to meet him. So the, the story ended well. But the point is that really affected him. That caused him to not want to be a part of that particular group because he saw the hypocrisy practical inconsistencies, and, and in addition, fraudulent self-promotion. Uh, so we're proud, we're condescending and judgmental toward others, we love the outward forms, we're inconsistent in our own lifestyle, and yet there is this fraudulent self-promotion. We try to hide our sins and faults, not saying you should stand up after the benediction and shout out all the sins you've committed this week, uh, in some kind of display, you know, histrionic uh, fit. But at the same time, do you go out of your way to hide sins that would otherwise be obvious or to give the impression that you're strong in an area where you're actually weak? To misrepresent, to engage in false advertising like the scribes and the Pharisees who did all their outward works to be seen of men. Their religious life, they blow the trumpet and hand money to the poor so that everybody would see and congratulate them. Their prayers, their fasting, all these things were calculated for the purposes of self-promotion. They were their own PR department. And they were trying to make other people feel that these are the people, these people are perfect, they've got it all together, they don't sin, they, they don't have any of the problems that I have and to, to put them on the pedestal. Rabbi. The great one. They were disingenuous and dishonest. Uh, they, if you heard their sermons, they would probably be the hero of every sermon that they preached if these Pharisees were preachers. Vainglorious. Uh, or as we might just say, fake. Fake. And we need to be conscious of that. We need to be very conscious of being real doesn't mean again you can be the hypocrite who's trying to look so humble that you're self-deprecating and and just trying too hard if that makes sense to be humble trying too hard trying to reveal things you shouldn't be revealing to people in general but are, are you pretending to be someone and something that you're not because here's the test now i realize you, you could maybe there's some Method. I haven't figured it out yet, but maybe there's a method where you could fool your family, your spouse, the people closest to you. Probably not. Probably not. Whatever your sins are, it's probably something that's going to come out with your children, with your spouse. And uh, this is one of the values of marriage, by the way, is because now these things that you might have been able to hide before, they come out and you have to deal with them as they come out. 
Uh, but ask your children, ask your spouse, ask the people, ask your parents, ask the people closest to you. Okay, Th- this is how we examine ourselves and have a little bit of accountability, not just self-examination, but talking to others and recognize those faults. When you sin against those people, confess that sin. Don't find a way in some circuitous, uh, you know, uh, just amazing fashion to turn it into your favor to make you look good. Like you did something wrong and now you're trying to actually cause it to make you look good. Okay? I've done that before. You know, it's not difficult to want to do it and sometimes you can succeed and it's a sin. And we need to humble and we, we find ourselves doing that. We need to go back and confess. You know, I, I, I won the argument with a lot of circuitous, uh, logical, you know, but... But I was wrong. I was wrong. We need to do that. We can't have fraudulent self-promotion. Also, radical self-deception. And I'm bringing it to a close here, at least for today. Radical self-deception. They're confident. And that should be scary. That should be scary for me and for you. They're confident. They're confident. We said they were self-confident. Paul says that they're confident in themselves. They're confident. They think we shouldn't assume that they know that they're being a hypocrite. We shouldn't assume that in every case the person flat out knows that they're a fraud. In many cases, in the case of the Jews here, Paul is persuaded that they are deceiving themselves. They are confident and they are blind to these things. They think they're the teachers and the guides of the blind. They are radically self-deceived and blinded themselves. And when Isaiah addresses hypocrisy, he reveals that when God brings judgment at the last day or even in history at times, that in fact it will surprise the hypocrite. He or she is not counting on the ultimate outcome of their hypocrisy. Maybe he doesn't even see the hypocrisy. Isaiah 33, 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire and with the everlasting burnings? Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. And the idea there is surprise. They're surprised. They weren't, they weren't expecting this. They come to the final judgment and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that and the other? Why are we being cast into everlasting burnings? Why? And Jesus says, I never knew you, worker of lawlessness. They weren't expecting it. Psalm 50 verse 21, which we'll sing in a moment, they, they thought because God was silent for a time and did not rebuke their hypocrisy that he would be silent forever that in fact he was like themselves that he was not concerned with the heart and the soul and the attitude he was only concerned with crossing the t's and dotting the i's of outward ordinances and forms but they're radically self-deceived the lord says i've kept silent for a time and understand that According to God's ordinary dealings, He will be silent for a time. 
He will leave you to yourself for a time. And maybe all you'll hear is a sermon now and again calling you to repentance from hypocrisy. And then He'll just leave you to yourself for a time. But His patience with you ought to be a motivation and incentive to repentance. Not to think that God was silent, God's just like me, and God's not concerned. Because the passage I'm alluding to, Psalm 50.21, These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you to pieces, and there be none to deliver. The Jews said, we have one Father, even God. We're saved. We're the children of God. We have nothing to worry about. And they were radically self-deceived. My friend, if, this, if these points describe you, be honest. Of course, in a way they describe us all, we need to examine ourselves. But I'm saying specifically, next Lord's Day, God willing, we'll consider um, some other things here. Uh, but just for this morning, if these things describe you and your children would say they describe you and your spouse would say they describe you and the Holy Spirit, if you ask for His wisdom and insight, applying the Word of God to your soul would testify that this is describing you. The pride, the condescending attitude, the obsession with outward forms, the practical inconsistencies and the fraudulent self-promotion, if that's you, You need to repent. You need to confess it. You need to ask God for forgiveness and help. And He will forgive you and help you. You have to humble yourself and come clean. Let's pray. Gracious God, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things of Your law that we may be humbled under your mighty hand and exalted through spirit-wrought faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.